Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Last time on Truly the Goats. This episode of Truly the Goats, it's about Angelo King Kong Mosca, a man who chose the CFL over the NFL went on to win five Grey Cup championships and to be named the top five defensive lineman ever to play in the league. Mosca turned to professional wrestling after his CFL career. The most famous, most viralist Canadian football-related YouTube clip ever is two 70-plus-a-year-old men in a physical altercation over a single play in a football game played nearly half a century before. Mr. Angelo Mosca. I spoke with Travis Curra, producer and co-host of the Two and Out CFL podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I also spoke with Josh Smith, host of the Tiger Cats-centered podcast, Podski Wee Wee. Oh, thanks for having me, man. From the very first hit in practice I was sold, he wrote. And crucial to Mosca's development was his line coach at Waltham, Tony Zulo. Mosca described Zulo's coaching philosophy as, quote, kill or be killed. I developed really quick hands that I used for the head slaps. They became a huge part of my style in the CFL. He also got some 60 scholarship offers from college football programs across the country, including Notre Dame. Angelo transferred to the University of Wyoming. Angelo never played a single down for Wyoming. And he figured, oh, I'm just going to stay here. They're paying me okay. And Canada is sort of where it's at right now. And Moscow made Hamilton his home what the city was, that blue-collar, uh, very Pittsburgh-like sort of vibe to the city. Uh, very blue-collar, very lunch-pale, you know. With a week and a half before the 1960 season, Mosca was traded to Ottawa. Trimble told him, I don't want to trade you, but we've, I've got to get you off these streets. And so, Mosca won the first of his Grey Cup titles in Ottawa. Despite his superheroics, Moscow is traded without forewarning to the Montreal Alouettes. A move to Montreal meant close proximity to Eddie Quinn, and Eddie Quinn was a professional wrestling promoter. Mosca wasn't into it at first, thought it was phony, didn't want anything to do with wrestling until he found out how much money he could make. That's why he wrestled and played football at the same time. Angelo signed his most lucrative football contract yet in getting back to Hamilton. The 1962 Grey Cup immediately became known as the Fog Bowl. The Hamilton Tiger Cats had lost again. And now, the conclusion. In 1963, the Tiger Cats went 10-4, while allowing just 14.2 points per game. Mosca enjoyed his second CFL All-Star nod that season as well. The Tiger Cats smoked Ottawa in the first game of the two-game playoff by a score of 45 to nothing, one of the most lopsided playoff victories in CFL history. After the second match, with the Tiger Cats playing foot off the pedal and losing by 17 points, Hamilton was ready for another Grey Cup appearance against... 
not the Winnipeg Blue Mountains, but the BC Lions. Columbia Lions for the opening of the 1963 Grey Cup game. Joe Caps, and Angelo Mosca's reputation was just about to shift into fourth gear. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats. Sports history as told through its superstars. But in any case, they broke through that cold snap in 1964, at which one of the most famous, certainly the most infamous play, probably in Grey Cup history, happened. How do you see that play if you, if you listen to Angelo's side of the story, you, you can find the play. It happened in the 1963 Grey Cup, where Willie Fleming was the star running back for the Lions. He uh, went wide on a sweep, and he ended up getting tackled. But it was one of those bang-bang things where Mosca's coming from the side. Fleming goes down, and Mosca goes over top of him, and basically landing on his head, knocked him out of the game. And then after the game, Joe Cap went to shake Mosca's hand, Cap refused, told him where to go, <laughs> and then here we are at the 2011 Grey Cup. So here's the audio of the play in question. Morris is in the slot, Homer playing shot. Cap stumbling around, pitches to Willie Fleming. Fleming gets almost to midfield, and Sepatelli got to him. Number 44. He's almost out on his feet there, walking around on a bit of a fog. And the BC Lions trainer, Roy Cavillan, is coming across now. It also appears that number nine, Joe Zuger... Uh, One more time. Just the relevant bits, but see if you notice anything missing from the comment. Gap stumbling around, pitches to Willie Fleming. Running gets almost to midfield, and Sepatelli got to him. Number 44. Angelo Mosca is not even mentioned at all. And since there was no replay, Mosca is even name-checked in reference to Fleming's injury. Thanks to the miracle of YouTube, we can rewind and see that Angelo's later contention that the hit was not late and that Fleming was not out of bounds. But BC Lions fans and CFL fans in all but one particular market 57 years ago would forever believe that Mosca had made an unnecessary, dirty play. The Tiger Cats went on to win an otherwise mostly uneventful Grey Cup, 21-10. But judging by newspaper coverage the following day, you might wonder if a game was actually played. The Vancouver Sun ran an incredible seven stories on a single page of the sports section. There are stories on the coach's take, the BC Lions general manager's take, and the lead referee's take. There's even a story on another newspaper's take. Writers proclaim that, Running left because of a play that should never have happened. Cut down by a player, an angry bunch of Lions later labeled the dirtiest in the league. And? A guy named Mosca earned himself the undying hostility of every football fan in Vancouver. Headline of the page in the Vancouver Sun is a quote from Mosca himself. Quote, he was still going, so I went for him. 
unquote. And that story leads with the brutal play of Hamilton's big Angelo Mosca has triggered the bitterest football controversy Vancouver has known. Fans and opposing players were united in condemnation of the man who crippled BC Lions halfback Willie Fleming with a seemingly unnecessary tackle in the second quarter. Incidentally, in case you're wondering, Fleming was hardly crippled. In fact, the very next year, he didn't miss a game and exacted revenge by blowing past Mosca for a 68-yard touchdown in the 1964 Grey Cup. Even in cities without a team in the game, cast Mosca in a certain light based on the play. Wrote Edmonton Journal sports editor Hal Pawson, The Tiger Cats took time out for nothing. Not even the whistle if one listens to the Lions who are bleeding like lambs over Angelo Mosca, the huge Hamilton butcher boy who removed Willie Fleming from the scene. The result? On that Grey Cup Saturday was born an anti-hero. No, no, not an anti-hero, a heel. The greatest heel ever in Canadian football and probably in all of Canadian sports. Except maybe not in Hamilton. How do you see that play? It's weird because you watch the footage and it doesn't look that devastating. We see stuff like maybe not as dirty because let's be honest, it's a cheap shot. I, I can say that. Hmm. Okay. But you look at what happened, and we see not in the sort of cheap shotish type of way, but in like the sort of ferociousness of the play. We see worse than that on an almost weekly basis when when you watch contact sports and combat sports. You know what I mean? I'm, I I remember as a kid because it was one of those things where you grow up a Ticats fan, and Angela Mosca is this revered figure, but he he retired ten years before I was born, so it was one of those things where. He wasn't front and center in, in my fandom. Like, it was Earl Winfield. It was Mike Kerrigan. It was Ben Zambiazzi. Those are the guys. That was my introduction to Tiger Cats football. Grover Covington, one of my favorite players ever. Angelo Mosco was from that generation before. So he was one of those names that you always heard. But back in, you know, 1991, the Internet didn't exist. And you couldn't just, like, easily look up stuff. So it was one of those things where you'd see still shots or, or anything like that, like in old newspaper clippings. Then when YouTube exists and you can kind of see the footage and you've heard the stories of how it's this nasty play that changed the tenor of the championship game and, and all this other stuff and you watch it and you're like, all right, I can kind of see. And again, you're looking at it with more modern day lenses where we look at football a lot differently now than we did back then. And you look at it and you're going, okay, it's kind of late, looks a little cheap, but it's like it doesn't look that vicious, and that 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 was the hit. It's just weird knowing what we know now and what we see now in football, especially to look at that and just kind of go, "All right, it's bad, but it doesn't look that bad." If, if that makes sense. Sensical or no, Angelo Mosca instantly became known for the nickname a teammate had given him earlier, the Big Nasty. Mosca loved that nickname, loved the animosity of the crowds at away games. In 1964, he was booed everywhere the Tiger Cats played, but to little avail. Hamilton went 10-3-1 that season, the defense again allowing just barely over 14 points a game. Prior to the Grey Cup rematch with the BC Lions, Canadian sports media was ready to restoke the fire. The 1963 Grey Cup game. BC Lions star Willie Fleming runs the end. Now watch for Angelo Mosk. Fleming is knocked out and the Lions lose. Was it dirty? The officials say no. Some newspapers say yes. The next day I was really hurt when I read the headlines in the Victoria paper. It said, dirtiest player injures star. And this is uh, no in no way true because I'm never out to meme anybody 
When I do, I think it's time that I get out of this game. Whatever your version of that play, Angelo Mosca was the big news of last year's Grey Cup game. He's the man you love to hate, and millions are looking forward to hating him next Saturday that afternoon. was the introduction to an episode of the CBC program, Seven Days, run before the 64 Grey Cup. An episode which devoted 12 full minutes ostensibly to the Tiger Cats, Lions, and the game itself, but the prime focus was on Angelo Mosca. Hell, the episode is entitled... Mosca. So he was the bad guy. So what? So what if opposing CFL crowds taunted him with boos and jeers and banners that were devoted solely to denigrating him? Using the physical acting skills he was honing in wrestling, Angelo was put his hands over his ears or his eyes to block out the taunting in pantomime fashion. So what if he was the player he loved to hate? So what if he turned everyday Canadians famed worldwide for their niceness and understated ways into masses of loud rage whenever the Hamilton Tiger Cats came to town? Angelo Mosca parlayed that reputation into bigger and bigger wrestling gigs in an ever-expanding circuit across Canada and, in 1964, Japan. In the interest of transparency, I'd like to give some full disclosure before getting any deeper into the story of Angelo Mosca, professional wrestler. I used to love pro wrestling, but now I'm mostly baffled by it. When I was in high school in the late 1980s, Vince McMahon was just stretching his muscles at promoting the then World Wrestling Federation. My peers and myself were fairly well obsessed with the weekend showings, the publications, the live shows. I still recall way too much about 1980s wrestling, about Superfly Jimmy Snuka and Jesse the Body Ventura, before he was governor of Minnesota, and Junkyard Dog and the Fabulous Freebirds and Abdullah the Butcher and Rocky Johnson, Dwayne Johnson's father, and Charlie Atlas and the Samoans, and you get the idea. I even had a tabletop wrestling dice game. A bit later, Josh was having a similar experience in Canada. Okay, so you're in your late 30s now so you were probably first getting into pro wrestling when the rock was coming up no i'm much okay. much earlier than that my earlier first, than that okay yeah my first wrestling event was maple leaf gardens 1986 okay. uh hulk hogan fought rowdy roddy piper and my <laughs> nice. grandfather and my father <laughs> took me to an event and my dad tells the story that I'm watching it because my dad was kind of into wrestling, but I'd gotten into it through television. He's like, well, there's an event close. Let's take them. And my dad regales the story of I'm kind of sitting there and I'm, I'm a little bored by it, he said, to be honest. And then Hulk Hogan comes out and the place erupts. And he says that I turn to him, I yank on his arm and I go, dad, this is really cool. And from then on, it was kind of like that's that's what I'm into. I, like when the rock and like stone cold Steve Austin and the attitude era stuff was happening. I was a teenager and I got, I got, I was into it then as well. Don't get me wrong, but no, my love of wrestling, my love of wrestling might go further back than my love of anything else. To be quite honest with you, <laughs> I think wrestling was sort of the first entertainment thing that I really attached myself to. Hmm. Uh, my dad tells me that I learned how to read by reading wrestling magazines. Hmm. He would, he would buy me wrestling magazines and that's how I taught myself how to read, which is, pretty incredible when you think about it but yeah it wasn't long after that that i got into to sports to football basketball baseball that sort of stuff but i think my my very first true love was professional wrestling something happened to my connection with the sport maybe it was that shocking expose aired on the news program 2020 in 1984 this is the ex-wrestler eddie mansfield Is this real wrestling no not real no not at all i mean if somebody believed that they'd be stupid Whatever it was, 
I ultimately gave up the wrestling obsession. It was sometime between WrestleMania 1 with Mr. T and this guy's appearance in the drama. Hey, look at this! Auto Trump! Toronto Trump! My God! The hostile takeover of Donald Trump on this McMahon! But what was strange for me is that pro wrestling fandom was kind of like the opposite of riding a bicycle. Once I stopped following wrestling, I had totally forgotten how to watch it or what to look for in the sport that isn't quite a sport. Travis, you're a huge fan. What is great about professional wrestling? What's the draw? Holy man, I get chills when you ask me that question. I, I've been a fan since I was about three years old. And I, I've been to WrestleMania twice. Uh, I went to 30 in New Orleans and 32 in uh, Texas. And the great thing about wrestling is that it doesn't discriminate. It's got everybody there. Young old from all over the planet it just blows my mind that people travel from new zealand <laughs> from all over the place uh, come to the states to watch this great spectacle uh in the middle of the ring it's a spectacle it uh gives you something to believe in like as, as a kid i really believed in hulk hogan training saying your prayers and all that stuff and then in the 90s i really got behind bret hart as a Canadian kid, he was the hero. I really did not like him losing to Shawn Michaels <laughs> in the in the mid '90s because Bret Hart was our guy. Um, if you are able to sit down and just watch wrestling with an open mind and let the the phony stuff go, because everybody's favorite movie is scripted. <laughs> everybody's favorite TV show is probably scripted, even if they tell you it's reality TV. Wrestling is able to bring everything together. It's a rock concert. It's a football game. It's a ballet all in one. And I, I love it. I can't see myself not being a fan. That winter, Angelo Mosca made himself a heel on both sides of the Pacific. In a special exhibition bout, Mosca took on a sumo wrestler. Seeing the similarity between the starting crouch of the sumo and that of the defensive line in football, Mosca dodged the wrestler's first move, put him down on the mat, and laughed. Such behavior was considered a grave insult in that sport. Just one question. Why would anyone want to be a heel? I think it's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think it's also a bit easier. It gives you a bit more freedom. And at that time... Everybody wanted to see the good guy win, but I think more than that, you wanted to see the bad guy get what was coming to him. It almost didn't even matter who was the one putting the heel in their place. So it was like each wrestling territory had their top baby face that a new heel would come in and challenge. And Angelo was that heel and it would keep his, worth and he'd be able to continue to be worth a lot more money as long as he continued to travel because back then i don't think merchandise sales were a part of the equation like it is now there's no movie contracts there's nothing like that then it was all about the gate and if you were in the main event you got paid and moscow was so good at being a bad guy so good at riling up the crowd that he continued to get paid and continued to main event 
everywhere he went. And for the fans, the heel is so key. The way I look at it is you you invest in the product like you invest in a film. Like Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was the villain in one of the Batman movies, or Heath Ledger was the, the Joker in right. The Dark Knight. And right. I love those guys as actors, but you, they're in this role. They're inhabiting this role. And you go, okay, as much as I like them as the hero in this or the hero in that, this is they're playing the villain, and you kind of just go with it. You know what I mean? It's the same sort of thing in wrestling. You know, good guys and bad guys are just the roles they're cast in, but you – Especially if you're in the live audience, and I've been to a million live wrestling shows, you want to immerse yourself in when everyone's booing someone, you kind of, you know, herd mentality and you start booing them too. It's funny, you know, growing up in Canada back in the day, there, there'd be these like patriotic American heroes, your Hulk Hogan's, your Hacksaw Jim Duggan's. And they chant USA, and I'd be at an arena in Hamilton or Toronto or wherever, and they'd start chanting USA, and the entire crowd chant with them. And like, well, we're not American. Like, looking back on it, it's like, well, that's kind of a weird thing in the Canadian <laughs> audience to do, but he was the hero, and that was his chant, so you went along with it. And I imagine wow. because I've seen Ankle Mosk, even when he was wrestling in the 80s, was a big dude. His birthday was recently. I think he just turned like 83 or 84. So if you think back 30-some-odd years ago, he's in his late 40s, early 50s, and he's still this jacked, like, just mountain of a man. And I can just imagine with his sort of demeanor that came from the football field and just his overall look, he could very easily portray a villain. Despite his increasing expertise as a pro wrestling heel, his expanding schedule, and the increasingly crazy amounts of money he was bringing in, Mosca wasn't ready to give up football yet. Football had always been his first love, and he still played for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. In 1965, the Hamilton Tiger Cats once again advanced to the Grey Cup Championship. It was the seventh appearance in eight years for the team, and Angelo Mosca's sixth Grey Cup game. Best of all was the opportunity for the Tiger Cats to exact revenge on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who had beaten them in the Grey Cups four times since Mosca's rookie season. Three years earlier... Mosca and the Thai Cats had played in the Fog Bowl. Now it was time for the Wind Bowl. The 1965 Grey Cup game. Mosca called it the most difficult game he'd ever played in. That late November day in Toronto. Winds about the 40 miles, 65 kilometers per hour, whipped through the stadium throughout the game. The conditions were extreme enough that a rule change was made just for this one game. Namely, that punt returns were disallowed. A good, if extremely unorthodox call, given the uselessness of punting into a wall of wind. And the game became distorted in other ways, too. Three safeties were scored by the Hamilton defense, with all three conceded by Winnipeg. Certainly both CFL records, if not records for all of gridiron football. Blue Bombers' head coach that season was Bud Grant, pro football and Canadian Football Hall of Famer, and his reasoning was based on a loophole in the Canadian game, which stated that a team taking the safety got to keep possession of the ball rather than punt. Based on the win bowl, that rule was changed in the 1966 CFL season. I won't get too much more into the minutiae of the win bowl. This is supposed to be a podcast about Angelo Mosca. The entire game is available on YouTube, and I highly recommend checking out this unique gem of a great cup. At times, it bears more resemblance to football of the 1890s than to football of the 1960s. In short, Grant's three surrendered safeties proved to be the margin of victory in Hamilton's 22-16 win. 
and the media as much blamed the coach for the loss as credited Mosca and a Hamilton defense described as anywhere from brilliant to vicious. Surely none of that mattered to Angelo. He had his third championship and his first over those damn Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Angelo Mosca's choice for the GOAT CFL team? He's probably biased, but Angelo goes with the 1967 Hamilton Tiger Cats, and with good reason. Between Mosca, center John Barrow, wide receiver Tommy Joe Coffey, the 1967 Tiger Cats boasted three of TSN's top 50 CFL players of all time. The team also included three other Canadian Football Hall of Famers in offensive lineman Ellison Kelly, receiver defensive back Garney Henley, and running back Tommy Grant, plus all-stars in quarterback Joe Zuger, running back Willie Bethea, plus a classic offensive line of Kelly, plus Gene Sepitelli, the guy who'd named Angelo the Big Nasty, John Homan, Bill Denichuk, and Charlie Turner. In the regular season, those Ticats went 10-4, and with three losses taken in an eight-day stretch, including two away games in three days. Imagining that happening today. But by season's end and through the playoffs, the Tiger Cats were, as the song says, humming. In their last five games going into the Grey Cup, Hamilton won by the following scores. 31 to 4, 26-4, 9-5, 11-3, and 26-0. Yes, non-Canadians, you heard those scores correctly. Moscow and the Tiger Cats were going to the Grey Cup again, and Angelo's heel image was sharper than ever. Angelo Moscow warmed up for today's Grey Cup fight with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders with a preliminary skirmish yesterday afternoon. The Hamilton Tiger Cat defensive tackle thumped Ottawa Rough Rider Gary Selinger just before Hamilton's final workout yesterday at Landown Park. It was a one-punch affair quickly broken up by Joe Zuger of the Tiger Cats and several other players. Gerald Bradman, Ottawa Journal. The heavily favored Tiger Cats took care of business against Saskatchewan in that great cup, winning 24-1. Yes, non-Canadians, that's the correct final score. And yes, CFL football is awesome. Quarterback slash punter Joe Zuger was named the game's most outstanding player, but some were of a different opinion. Zuger wasn't the star of the Centennial Grey Cup game. Angelo Moscow was. And never mind about him having the advantage of a tune-up in the stadium parking lot the day before the game. Moscow should have won the color TV that was awarded to Joe Zuger by the great unwashed and uninformed of the press box. If I thought there was something I could resign from, short of the human race, I'd do it. It's entirely possible that Moscow has never played a better football game in his whole life. It is certain that he has never played with such flair in a Grey Cup game. He made 13 tackles by my computer, and if any one man was responsible for turning the Rough Rider offense into a powder puff, it was Big Angie. Jack Matheson, Virginia Leader Post. Angela Mosca seemed, in that great cup, to have reached an unassailable peak. At least in football. For fans of pro wrestling history, or even just pro wrestling, the best part of Tell Me In My Face could well be the second appendix, which features simply a list of results of every match Angelo fought solo in a tag team or battle royale from 1969 to his handful of token appearance in the mid-1980s. It's 10 pages long. The appendix detailing his CFL career doesn't even make one. The record reads like a who's who from three decades of Canadian and early WWF wrestling. In 1969, for example, he fought with or against Porky the Pig, Eric the Red, Yvonne Koloff, and Gene Kaniski. 
And about half of Mosca's bouts that year were against Archie Goldie, the longtime Canadian stampede wrestler and a frequent champion of the Alberta Association. Mosca won his first ever pro wrestling title against Goldie, losing it back to him in about three weeks. Hey, title slipped quickly in pro wrestling. What do you think are the crossover talents between these two ventures? What makes a football player a good wrestler and vice versa? I think it's toughness. It's discipline. I know a lot of guys from back in the day, like Gene Kaniski, played in Edmonton Mm. and was the world heavyweight champion. And a lot of these guys would do it after they retired because football players, we got to remember, didn't make – I mean, no athlete did, really. Made a ton of money back in the 60s and 70s, so they all kind of had side gigs. Like, you can go back as far as, like, Bronco Nagurski, who – I'm not sure if he wrestled in the offseason of football or if he retired to wrestle, but it, it seems that there's just always been this sort of crossover between professional wrestling and professional football. And I think a lot of it just has to do with these are mentally tough, physically tough, disciplined athletes who need to be both, to be to be in, in both realms. I know there's a lot of the quote-unquote it's fake stuff with, with pro wrestling, but guys getting slammed on mats and getting slapped and, and chopped and stuff and getting suplexed, that's real. Your body still go through it. It's still not something that, that feels very good. And, prof- and professional football players, I feel like are, and this is not meant to be a shot at any other professional athlete, but I don't know if you'll find any tougher athlete than people who play football. There's there's just something, again, I didn't play, I played high school football in Canada. I didn't play at an extremely high level, but it's one of those things where you just kind of shrug off the injury and, and, and you go out there and, and you perform. I just remember, and again, I doubt it's this way nowadays, but there's, are you hurt or are you injured? And the difference <laughs> is if you're hurt, you can play, and if you're injured, you can't. And there was just a lot of times when guys would go out there, myself included, we were hurt, but we weren't injured. So you, you kind of played through the pain. And I feel like something can go wrong in a wrestling ring and, and you kind of just got to, you got an end point, you got to keep going. And I, I feel like having played football and having that sort of football mentality of, no, I can continue, I think translates very well into the world of pro wrestling. And like, who was tougher than Angela Mosca? By 1971, Angela had added names such as Bruno Sammartino, Gorilla Marconi, Bobby Heenan, and Abdul the Butcher to his resume. At this point in his second job, the schedule was becoming less strenuous, his reach was ever greater, and the payouts were bigger. Angelo King Kong Moscow was on his way up in the wrestling world, and he was beginning to enjoy it even more than football. From the dominant win over Saskatchewan in the 1967 Great Cup through to the 1971 season, the Ticats went through what Moscow later called lean times. Not once making a great cup final, and in 1971 going just 7-7 seven and seven for the season. The defense that had been so hungry with players in their primes in 1967, many of whom were still around in Hamilton, was now aging badly, and the offense had completely turned over in the past four seasons. At some point during training camp prior to the 1972 season, Moscow realized he'd lost a step on the football field and he just wasn't looking forward to playing anymore. He informed his coaches that he'd be retiring after the season. But when the Tiger Cats had gotten off to a 1-3 start, Angelo was asked to retire earlier. He refused, and instead roared back with the rest of his team to whip off 10 straight wins to close the year. And while it was the surprisingly high-flying offense led by rookie of the year quarterback Chuck Ely and CFL MOP wide receiver Garney Henley that returned Hamilton to the Great Cup to meet Saskatchewan again. It was the defense that won the championship. First quarter interception led directly to the Ticats' first touchdown, 
and the defense kept the Rough Riders off the scoreboard for the entire second half in a 13-10 nail-biter. Angelo Mosca had played in his ninth grade cup, had won his fifth, was leaving Canadian football as a champion, and the Tiger Cats had won the cup in Hamilton. The Hamilton Tiger Cats, on the last play of the game, kicked the field goal to beat the Saskatchewan Rough Riders 13 to 10. Mosca had certainly enjoyed the cheers of Hamilton fans, but he was loving the booze everywhere else. He decided that Angelo was too nice a name for a heel. So he started competing under the name King Kong Mosca. King Kong Mosca is credited with some 10 regional titles in locations like Georgia, the Mid-South, California, and the Caribbean. Perfectly natural for a Boston kid who's made his name Canada, right? He was also a five-time NWA Canada champion in the 70s and 80s, swapping belts with guys were headliners in the early days of the one-day dominant WWE, guys like Big John Studd, Sergeant Slaughter, Sergeant Slaughter, champion of Canada? Weird. Mr. Fuji, Great Hossein Arab. Great Hossein Arab was, of course, later rebranded as the Iron Sheik and briefly held the WWF World Championship title before Hulk Hogan rode Hulkamania to its crest. But even... More importantly than title wins, after all, these tend to be extremely ephemeral in pro wrestling, were the techniques he brought to, let's say, a sport on the cusp of becoming a multi-billion dollar enterprise for Vince McMahon and his WWF slash WWE. Some of the modern wrestling media, when looking back at Angelo, describes him as being highly influential in creating modern heel tactics. What do they mean by that? You know, I was watching some of his stuff on the WWE Network, and there's not too much on there, but he's worked with some of the all-time greats. Captain Lou Albano managed him when he spent uh, time in the WWF in the early 80s. He worked against the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Mr. Fuji, was actually great in the ring as a heel, but I think a lot of fans remember him as a manager of, you know, Yokozuna and the WWF in the in the 90s. But I thought Moscow was actually ahead of his time. Of course, from football, he was he was a natural athlete. So he could move around the ring, but at the same time, he was over 300 pounds. And that's really impressive. In that time, a lot of the wrestling bad guys at the time it was really sort of kind of cheesy taking the easy way out you're wearing a mask you're like just the generic assassin or whatever you are but when mosca talked you believed it he was so i thought he was so charismatic and he would do little things like uh he's just beating up some local guy just beating him into next week <laughs> and he would pick the guy up on the two count just to dish out more punishment. And at that time, in the early 80s, there weren't many guys doing that. <laughs> he had this confidence, this cockiness about him that I thought, I actually think that Mosca would have been able to hold his own later on. Because by the time the 80s rolled around, Mosca was towards the end of his wrestling career, his knees had taken a beating from football and wrestling. I think when wrestling really blew up with 
you know, Hulk Hogan in the mid eighties, Hulkamania and all that. I think Mosca would have been able to even been more successful at wrestling than he was as it is. Yeah. He really missed it by about five years. I'm old enough to remember the early eighties and when Vince McMahon had taken over the Federation from from his father <laughs> and was learning how to create storylines. You know, he's the one that brought us Roddy Piper and Jesse Ventura as an analyst. And in fact, Angelo was doing the color stuff after he retired from the yeah. ring, right? As a, like a Jesse heel Ventura. announcer. And Jesse Ventura replaced him. <laughs> On commentary, I think he did All-Star Wrestling, but he did do some commentary with Jesse the Body Ventura. But you're right, if he had just been born five years later or whatever it was, I think he would have been able to reap the benefits of that whole explosion. And I think he would have fit in with the Pipers and the Venturas of the world. But he ended up doing okay. He ran some uh, of his own promotions. I believe he, he, what did he call it, Moscomania in Hamilton. And they had about 12,000 people at this card. And, and, I, and I know some guys like Ric Flair were involved. And I know he worked with the World Wrestling Federation, now World Wrestling Entertainment, back in the day too. I, I just know that he was a big, nasty heel. And he, like you said, kind of parlayed that villain reputation he had in professional football into sort of a villain reputation in the ring. And uh, Vince ended up giving him some money and uh, buying him out of that uh, territory and uh, letting uh, Vince run the shows instead of Mosca because, yeah, Vince took everything over. It seems like Angelo really doesn't have many bad things to say about Vince because he got taken care of, he got paid, but... I would have liked to have seen Mosca been able to be on a major card that we all look back at, like uh, the first WrestleMania or something like that. In the 80s, Angelo took on his son, Angelo Jr., as a tag team partner and was recast as a babyface. The two battled various combinations of old names and new, including Kabuki, Purple Haze, Magnificent Morocco, Blackjack Mulligan, and the Road Warriors. But Angelo Jr. just wasn't that into the game, and Angelo Sr. was feeling his age, mostly in his legs. After a couple fights in Canada against the Iron Sheik in December 1984, the last a Texas deathmatch, no less, King Kong Moscow was done with wrestling full-time at the age of 47. And in 1990, he was no longer a wrestling promoter either, having sold the rights to his Moscow Mania promotions. After mostly retiring from pro wrestling, Angelo settled down in Hamilton, where he became the living legend he remains in that city today. In 1987, he was inducted in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, 15 years after he played his last game, and he publicly wondered why it had taken so long. In 2006, Canadian sports network TSN named him number 37 on its list of top 50 CFL players of all time, good for all-time top five status among defensive linemen, and he said his friends asked him why his rating had been so low. He might not have been doing much in the public eye since retiring from wrestling, aside from a few bit parts of the tough guy or embittered cop on one TV program or another, but Angelo Mosca was just about to remind Canadians just who the greatest heel of all time is. It probably seemed like a good idea at the time. 
Some organizer or organizers figured a meeting between Angelo Mosca and Joe Cap, antagonist and outspoken rival since the 63 Grey Cup, would be a fun thing, a humorous way to bring together two legends of CFL football. On his part, Mosca certainly jumped at the idea, clearly an extremely convenient chance to get some pre-release publicity for his upcoming autobiography, Tell Me to My Face. And then here we are at the 2011 Grey Cup. They're in the same room at a Legends luncheon. And Joe Cap, you can see the video. He's there to tease Mosca. And part of me wonders if it started as sort of a King Kong Mosca work. And <laughs> because Mosca tells Cap where to shove the flowers. And then <laughs> they were racist after that because Cap just kept persisting at it. Mosca swings the cane. Cap throws the punch and uh, it was like back to 1963 when Mosca was the biggest villain in Canada all over again. It's one of those things where it's it's a car crash. It's you know the swinging of the cane, the, the, the punch, the falling down. Like it's it's sad in a way to see two elderly gentlemen still holding such bitter grudges against one another. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't watch it and laugh. Like that's, it's, it's good. It's good theater. It's good television. It's, it's, I, I hope I never get to the point where I'm in my seventies and I'm still holding a grudge against someone and getting a fist fight to be quite honest. But it's one of those things where again, it's, it's Angela Mosca kind of, kind of being the bad guy although if, if you look at it, it it looks like joe cap starts it and but who knows what was said it was a viral moment i think before we really knew what viral moments were it, it actually reminded me of piper's pit that is a perfect analogy <laughs> it looked like a setup it was one of the very first cfl youtube viral videos uh back in 2011 and in fact angelo got another 50 minutes of fame in america he got to go on dr phil because of that two football greats, Joe Cap and Angelo Moskett. These two came to blows at a Canadian Football League luncheon. The video of their fight has gone viral with over a million views. All right, well, we invited both players to the show. Joe Cap said he didn't want to see this guy again. He, <laughs> he didn't say no. He said hell no. Now, Angelo, the man with the cane and author of his new memoir, Tell It to My Face, Mosca had come out with his book that same year, so that's why it's like, was this, was this set up? (laughs) Yeah. Was this a setup? Did Angelo Mosca, the man with an invented history, have a part in scripting the Cap Mosca dust-up of 2011? If so, it's one of the all-time great setups. The 2011 luncheon overshadowed the Grey Cup itself. Final score, BC Lions 34, Winnipeg Blue Bombers 23. Angelo once again parlayed his nasty attitude into a payout, and he established himself as one of the all-time great Hamilton Tiger Cats. Just four years later, Angelo became only the second Tiger Cat to ever have his jersey number retired. You know, growing up, you hear names, and they almost don't sound real. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, when I hear a Ron Lancaster, George Reed, Russ Jackson... Angelo Mosca, of course, those are all Canadian football guys. They almost seem like a comic book superheroes to me. And Mosca still has that aura about him, especially 
in Hamilton. He, he just had his number retired in 2015. It was just May of 2019. A big giant mural of him went up in the city of Hamilton on the side of an uh, an old building. Old timers, especially, they know what Angelo Mosca is. And then somebody like my generation, like my one of my memories of him is the 2011 Grey Cup getting into a fight with Joe Cap. Like I was never allowed to see him actually play, but you hear the stories and about how nasty he was. But it's like Hamilton is Angelo Mosca and Angelo Mosca is Hamilton. He's one of the legends of the game. And I think a good 90% of CFL fans would still know who he is, even though his last game was the 1972 Grey Cup that he won. And there you have it. Angelo Mosca is truly a GOAT. The all-time greatest heel in sports history. Except, of course, in Hamilton. This has been Truly the Goats, an inclusive medium production. We'd like to... No. No, no. Wait, 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 wait. I've still got one question. Here's the thing. Professional wrestling is not a sport. McMahon himself has admitted such, albeit in order to get a more favorable tax break on his enterprise, a long story. Many fans of the various broadcast productions on WWE and other wrestling associations prefer watching the storylines to the actual playing out of the matches, further de-emphasizing the importance of the physicality in pro wrestling. But truly, no one would call it a TV series, not even a reality series. The live shows are so important. But wrestling's not theater, it's not dance, it's not performance art. Well, maybe it is performance art. So, what is it? Well, in the words of Angelo Mosca, he would call it an exhibition of strength and skill. Okay, I'll take that. This has been Truly the Goats, an inclusive medium production. We'd like to thank our guest, Travis Curra, of the Two and Out CFL podcast. That's number two, A-N-D, out. And Josh Smith of the Hamilton Tiger Cats podcast, Podski Wee Wee, spelled exactly how it sounds. Extra material, show notes, blog posts, and other related stuff on the greatest of all time are available on our website at trulythegoats.com. On Facebook and Twitter, find us at trulythegoats. For more inclusive medium podcasts and video productions, visit us at inclusivemedium.com. Next time on Truly the Goats, the life story of a great 20th century U.S. athlete who went by the nickname Babe, but probably not the Babe you're thinking of. I'm Oz Davis, thanking you for listening to Truly the Goats.
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.